Hi everyone, this is Jean-Marc. I am the creator of DataMesh, uh, the founder of Next Data. We are reimagining what data sharing could look like. We are growing our team rapidly and we need you. If you are a distributed systems engineer, if you're a product manager or designer of a large-scale PaaS SaaS infrastructure, please check out our page at nextdata.com and look at our open roles. We'd love to hear from you. A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mont. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left DataStacks. You know, thanks for all their help in ha- founding things. But I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introductions and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Bringing software testing best practices to data. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Sophia Tania. She goes by Tania, so if you hear me reference her that way, that's what she typically goes by. She's a tech principal at ThoughtWorks. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views in the episode. I asked her to be on, especially because of her presentation she did in 2021 on applying testing, especially important for data contracts, in data mesh. Personal note here, I was apparently getting extremely sick throughout this call, so if I ramble a bit, I apologize. And Tanya's dog also really wanted to be part of the conversation, so you might hear us both kind of chuckling about her antics a bit. Tanya has some really great insights, so I probably asked her maybe the hardest questions of any guest to date. She did a great job of answering them, but you know, I just want to kind of prep people for that. Uh, So what are some key takeaways or thoughts from Tanya's point of view? Number one, we have to bring software best practices to data, but we should do it smartly and not make the same mistakes we made in software. Let's start from a leveled up position from what we learned on what not to do in software. Schmack has said the same thing. The question becomes, 
how, but looking at how practices evolved in software should bring us a lot of learnings as to what to do or what not to do. Number two, just pushing ownership of data to domains won't suddenly solve data quality challenges. The new owners, you know, the domains, have to really understand what ownership means and what quality means for use cases leveraging their data. You know, not just what quality means in general, but what is quality for those users? Number three, a reasonably good way to measure if your data product is kind of quote unquote good enough regarding data quality is to look at your SLOs, your service level objectives and SLIs, your service level indicators. If you are constantly hitting those SLIs, you can probably focus more on new features. But if you're not, you need to improve your quality so you're hitting your SLIs. Number four, I think this one is controversial. Consider almost a zero-trust approach to testing for data. Test as data is flowing through the system, as data lands constantly. Test in development as to what changes might impact downstream data. And then consumers should be writing tests against the, the data that they are ingesting to prevent issues on their side as well. You know, Scott note here, that's a lot of tests, but how important is certain data to your organization? Maybe look to implement that rigorous of testing around stuff that's really, really crucial. Number five, in a decentralized ownership model, many data consumers are less likely to trust data, at least at first. So you need to show them why they can trust data at the data product level. Leveraging proper testing and data contract strategies is crucial to being able to to prove out data quality so someone goes, oh, I can rely on this. Number six, you should look to build out a robust testing and observability framework as part of your flat platform. Data product owners or domains shouldn't have to build these things out manually themselves. Number seven, if you only have detection of data quality issues once the data hits production, once something or someone is potentially already using that data, that's an issue. Look to create ways to test data at the data product development stage as part of that CICD. We can't really rely on only on, on lagging quality indicators if we want to up our data quality game. Number eight, data for analytics and AI is even more complicated than on the operational plane. Generally, on the operational plane, data hasn't been transformed multiple times. So if there's an issue, it's either in the source application or an issue with the API call that was made, right? In data, we have to develop smarter tests as data flows through the pipelines because there are so many, you know, whether that's data products or whatever, but as you, it flows all throughout, you know, inside the data product, out of the data product, through the output ports, we need to be able to test it along that entire journey and know what should be happening and why. Number nine, data producers need to define quality data in terms of what consumers actually want and need instead of arbitrarily setting these quality levels. What do the consumers actually want? Number 10, consumer-driven testing in data sounds wonderful, but it's hard to see teams being willing to do it. We need better tooling and ways of working to make this easier. Number 11, data quality surveys of data consumers are important for a number of reasons, but are again, lagging indicators. They should be used to help develop appropriate SLAs and SLIs for data products and monitor if data products are generally meeting customer needs. But again, lagging, look for things that aren't so lagging. 
12, potentially controversial. Can a data producer really develop a custom test for their data product for each individual consumers? Or do the consumers owe it to the producer to develop tests to ensure that the data product continues to serve their own use case well? Scott, note here, this one question could start a LinkedIn you know, flame war, I think, but it's an important question to ask. Who does the testing fall on? Where is that kind of culpability around, hey, this should have been tested to see if this actually fit into what this use case was going to, what what the use case needed, if things were still kind of hitting what the, the use case needed from the data. Number 13, if you push for consumer-driven testing, don't be surprised at a lot of pushback. That happens still even in the API world where it's been, where this consumer-driven testing has been way more accepted for years. Number 14, are consumers ready and able to programmatically define what good data quality means for them for each use case? There are some tools that can help, but practices and toolings are still mostly nascent, right? Are the consumers actually ready if we tell them, you need to start doing consumer-driven testing? Can they actually even do it? Number 15, potentially controversial. Many consumers still have the kind of give me all of your, your, all you've got, all of the data you have, and I'll sort through it mindset. Trying to get them to lock into what they are consuming or want from a specific data product will be hard. Number 16, there can be a real chicken and egg scenario around data products, especially with testing. Consumers don't know precisely what they want and what will best suit them until they see kind of that V1 of the data product of the data. But those building out a data product, you know, and having to change it a lot to customer feedback is tough. Producers want to build it once instead of, you know, go through 10 iterations. So just be prepared for this to be an ongoing issue in data and for it to lengthen times to data product release Because again, the consumers aren't willing to say this is exactly what I want or aren't able to say that um, before they they get their arms around things. But the producers don't want to produce something that's not going to be leveraged. So it's push and pull there. Number 17, potentially controversial one, having your transformations handled by low-code, no-code solutions can easily hurt you more than it will help you early. Be very wary. Scott note here, this is coming up a lot in a lot of conversations recently and was featured in the ThoughtWorks radar released in early May of 2023. I think this is something that's that's people are getting bit by that they think the low code, no code, especially on kind of virtualization stuff is, is starting to hurt uh, more than it helps at scale. And finally, number 18, in software development, including development for data, abstractions are crucial but you can get, they can get you in trouble pretty easily. Really think deep about your abstractions because it's easy to lose sight of what underlies the abstractions. And abstractions on abstractions on abstractions just compounds that issue. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode.
Okay, very, very excited for today's episode. So I've got uh, Sophia Tanya here, who just goes by Tanya. She's a technical principal at ThoughtWorks. To be clear, though, she's only representing her own views on this episode. We're going to talk about a lot of different things, but um, Tanya did a really, really great presentation, I think back in, in 2021 even, about um, testing in software and how... Uh, well, testing in data in data mesh and how we need to ad- adopt some of these principles from software, but like how do we adapt it? How do we, as Nishmax talked about, decontextualize from software best practices and bring them over to data? And what do we need to le- relearn? What do we need to change? All of these different things. Like, how do we think about this in the kind of greater data contracts conversation? And how do we have communications where we think about things at the technical level? aspect, right? Like the technical interface layer, but that that doesn't actually encapsulate all of the communications we need when we have actually exchanging context between two different domains. You have to have the person-to-person as well as the <laughs> technical and all of that fun stuff. So we're going to talk about that, some of the anti-patterns that, that she's seen and just a whole lot of different things. So I'm very excited about this. But uh, before we get into that, Tanya, if you don't mind, if you could uh, give people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we'll jump into the conversation at hand. Yeah. Hi. It's great. Uh, great to be here. Thanks, Scott. Um, so yeah, so my name is Tanya, and uh, I'm a tech principal uh, at ThoughtWorks. Um, I guess my data mesh credentials, uh, quote unquote, um, is that I was um, the the tech principal. So that's essentially the the account leader, uh, techni- uh, in terms of technology for uh, for one of our accounts implementing data mesh for about two years. And in that in that period as well, I was pulled into some other you know data mesh conversations with other clients. Um, I did just take up another role recently, uh, like within the past uh, two months within ThoughtWorks. Uh, that's still data adjacent, not necessarily data mesh. Um, prior to that, I think this is kind of relevant maybe to our conversation today. Uh, I can I come from a sort of generalist background, so not necessarily a data specialist, right? So uh, I've played developer and tech leadership roles across multiple areas, backend and infrastructure, actually, uh, on top of data. Um, and another thing that is probably somewhat relevant is that back in 2019, uh, the client that I was working with, I think I can safely say this, um, was part of the inspiration behind, uh, that original article, um, in the Marty Fowler website. Yeah. And, and yeah, Jamak says, obviously she was digging into why is data lake not driving a value? And that's the whole thing of beyond the data lake doesn't mean like don't use data lake as a technology but like as an approach and all that fun stuff but so i think that background exactly as you said has been really helpful you know jamak has talked about this too she's a developer at heart she's talked about you know in data why do we have to do things so incredibly different so let's talk about that kind of what you've learned I know you're you've kind of dipped back out of super super data focus but that coming from that generalist background like what do people do in data that are so wrong or, or whatever you know like what what should we be taking from software engineering and what should we be looking from a one-to-one basis what should we be decontextualizing and recontextualizing from software what shouldn't we be doing like, how do you and how do you go about trying this 
in your organization? So giant, giant question, but like that's kind of where I'd like to to kind of explore and, and I'll, you know, I'll continue to ask questions as we're going through that. But like, how do you think about that question initially of like, hey, we, we've figured out how to do stuff pretty well on the software side. We don't know how to do stuff all that well on the data side in a lot of aspects. So how do you start to to evaluate what should we bring over or what shouldn't we? Right. Uh, maybe backtracking a little bit, but kind of the the trigger that made me start thinking about this for myself, right? When when I was uh, leading up to that talk that I did back in 2021 was that somebody at a client asked me, like right now I have data in a centralized way, right? I have a team working on exposing the data in, their, in the data warehouse and I have quality issues. And now you're telling me I have to decentralize this uh, to different data product teams, and that's going to help with quality. Um, that's a bit of an extreme, like it's a bit of a, a simplification and not exact words, but that's sort of the sentiment um, that I got, and that kind of led me to think about this. And um, so my first re- reaction there was that, yeah, it's may seem it may seem scary, but um, quality in this like in this setting is is owned by each individual data product teams, right? That's of course uh, one sort of key principle. Um, and then another part is this our decentralization uh, and the techniques to ensure quality. Um, there are techniques for that there that have been there for a while uh, in software engineering. Um, so on that one, um, really I'm talking about, I think there's more and more adoption uh, anyway of these these things right now, but I'm thinking anything from unit testing um, to observability in production. Um, and that actually kind of brings me to the point of when it comes to data, this is the bit that is a little, a little bit different. Um, there are two things to, to make sure, um, there are two things to to ensure our, our, you know, are correct. Uh, the first one is the data itself. So data quality tools, data quality tests, right? Uh, that we run in production, um, typically in production at least, right? That is certainly a necessity. Um, another way I think of looking at those tests is they're sort of lagging indicators, right? As in, if they're failing in production, well, the issue is somewhere else. So the question is, can we detect that sooner? Um, and so there are a few ways of looking at what the sooner mean. I think one way to look, uh, one way to think about it within um, within the, the context of a particular data product here is, well, what transformations, like the problem when there's something wrong um, like that already in production, the problem could be the data coming from my source system or the transformation that I'm making. So now if we dig into that transformation that I'm making, how can I get leading indicators that I'm doing something you know, potentially wrong? That's what tests are for, right? Unit test, uh, component test. If you have something a bit more complex than uh, something that I call flow tests, uh, sort of the entire thing, but and like, you know, kind of a smoke test, right? For the entire orchestration. Um, and then, and then there's the other side of, um, the other problem 
The other side of the problem could be the data that's coming from my source. So how can I guard against that? And that's another type of leading indicator of like you doing data quality tests, but against those as well to kind of protect or at least detect, if not protect, detect your own, uh, detect the data that you and your data product is exposing. Yeah, and I think that, that I like that detect versus protect almost framing of like, in a lot of cases, all we can do is detect. Like we can protect that from a testing standpoint of this data, you know, no longer matches this. This column is supposed to be numbers and, you know, or integers and it's now strings. No, that like, okay, I'm going to kind of put a bottle or, or, you know, a cap on this data that's going to come in and say, okay, I'm putting a cap on the end of the pipeline versus the top of the pipeline to make sure it doesn't get populated into this thing and people use it because it's wrong. But I, I liked what you were, were talking about there of uh, as well. So Carlos Mateo on his his episode, uh, or sorry, Carlos Saona on his episode um, at eDreams Odigio was talking about um, they have kind of the same platformy approach for transformations and many other data products go through the same transformation platform logic. And so if they detect something that's wrong, they can go, well, let's look at these other data products that are doing the similar transformations. And immediately it jumps to those and goes, no, they're not wrong. Okay, then there's something wrong in my transformation code or in my source system. And that that you start to very quickly, you know, you think about SRE practices and you go, okay, something has gone wrong. How do I get to, you know, root cause analysis is both good and terrible because there is never anything that's truly the root cause because everything is interconnected and all of that, even in loose coupling and all that stuff. But uh, we won't go into that uh, theory of reliability engineering. I'm going to have a panel on that at some point. But um, that you're able to start to easily narrow in on things, which we haven't done very well in data. It's been like the data is wrong. What does that even mean? What, like wrong in what sense? And, And so I think that when you talked about that decentralized management of quality, that is something that's really important to think about because you can actually contextualize quality at a local level instead of a global level. And everything has to be at the same quality level or it's not quality and nobody can leverage it, even though it's like, what is the actual use cases need for quality? So I'd love to hear how how you started to work with people to understand that, right? Not just like, hey, we're just going to implement these systems, but like, how do you, how did you work with people to get them over that hump to be like, no, decentralization can actually mean better quality because we're able to actually start to monitor what matters? It's a big question, I think, right? (laughs) Um, I really think that um, one of the things that you mentioned just now, uh, it's like quality as the different data products could have their own definition of quality, right? I think that that's uh, a key part of this. And the way that I would start thinking about this is, is in terms of when I'm part of a data product, what is my customer impact? Well, what does, what does quality mean for my customer or hopefully many customers? Um, and what they, the way that they think about quality 
in aggregate, right, uh, for this set of customers. That should inform how I, as a as producer, think about quality. Um, and and I think that's the way to start too. Um, so if I'm I'm working with um, you know a very gnarly data quality problem where people don't know where to start, I would start with, okay, um, let's look at a data product that's um, the most painful if anything there is wrong. Let's look into that. Let's look into uh, a few of the primary customers and let's understand what does quality mean for them. Maybe a particular field, like maybe the total sales, right? It's the total sales number. It's something that is absolutely um, cru crucial to be correct or, or whatever it is, right? Um, we can look into that and then if there's really nothing, if we're really starting from a place of like uh, from zero, then we can start with uh, those lagging indicators, putting those data quality tests from the view of um, these customers. So you can, I, I kind of sometimes refer to this as the consumer driven contract test for data as well, right? Uh, that's, I think, one place to, to start because that then allows us to at least get a baseline. Okay, those are the uh, consumer expectations of data quality. Are we meeting them or how often are we meeting and missing them? Um, and then that tells us, okay, we're not meeting them and we're not meeting them often. What, how can we do better? And how we can do better is by adding in those leading indicators, right? Whether it be uh, adding uh, those data quality tests, but on our sources. So we are telling them too on our part, like, hey, this is what I need from you. If you're not giving me those, I can't do my job. I can't. I can't deliver the kind of data that my customers need. Uh, so that is again one part of the leading indicators, and another part is, well, maybe the other part is maybe I keep having bugs in my data pipeline, and I need to guard against that, and that means I need to add tests uh, and and apply CI/CD to my data pipelines. But I kind of I kind of think about it from the customer angle, like. What does data quality mean for customer A, B, C, or if there are too many, then we start, you know, we prioritize from the ones that um, are super impactful. Uh, we kind of start from there. We start monitoring from there. We see where we are right now. We see where we need to be. Um, and then we see where we need to guard ourselves. Yeah. And, and I want to get into that philosophical question of like, who generates what tests and like, how does that work and that communication layer of okay, do should the consumers be communicating in the technical code? And if we have, um, if we're trying to lower the bar to leveraging data, you know, and we're requiring people to write tests, that's probably uh, kind of at odds. But I, I, I like what you were talking about there of, I need this to do my job. And, and one thing I've kind of talked about is we should have, a universal framework inside an organization for measuring quality levels. But so that way, or, or that th this is the way that this measurement of this quality is defined, this aspect of data quality is defined. So that way, if I go from data product A to data product B, I don't have to learn a different definition of what completeness or accuracy or things like that mean, like the more that we can standardize those so that I have the same user experience going from A to B 
and I can comfortably combine these if I understand the quality aspects of those two. But exactly what you said of like, why does this matter at these local levels? What what actually matters to you? And one thing Emily Gorsinski brought up on on a uh, uh, I think a 2021 uh, webinar was there was one client that had two data products that were exactly the same. And those might diverge, but they were exactly the same because one had a five minute timeliness and the other had a four nines need for accuracy. And so two different customers had two very different needs and doing five minute timeliness and four nines of accuracy was going to be so expensive versus just having two data products that did the same thing that one had a much better accuracy level and one had it. And that's that's an anti-pattern, but it's also a pattern, right? Like it's an anti-pattern. Don't have that for every single thing. You want reuse, you want all of this stuff. But if there are wide, wildly different needs and they're both of value enough to justify doing this, you should look at doing that. But like, so I, I want to get into that question about the the who should generate what tests because i've also seen like i said that if you're asking i I do think we need the consumers to lean in right like something that i've seen with data mesh is that the consumers now feel like they have the power and it's like you must give us all the data we want give us everything and make it perfect and do all of this and it's like now we can't flip that that completely around we have to have like an actual uh consumer producer relationship like an actual relationship so like i'd love to hear kind of your philosophy of how you think it should work but also like you've gone through this with people so you know there's the abstract there's the like uh economic concept of you know nothing else changes if i do this if i if you know if i significantly increase the price of this but nothing else in the market changes that's not the real world so i'd love to hear kind of conceptually how you'd love for it to work if people weren't involved, if everybody behaved as if they should, but then like walk through, we can talk about, you know, but let's start with that aspect. But then I want to kind of get into that aspect of, okay, but how does it, how did this actually look? Like, how did you get too good from starting at, we need to figure out how to actually do these tests, but like, how do you think it should work? And then we can get into how it actually works in, or looks in reality. Yeah, I think maybe first an admission that um, this con- consumer-driven contract test is something that I've advocated for, but haven't quite done for data. I, this is something I've done for backend development APIs. And even there, the challenge that you mentioned also applied. So usually even for backend development, um, whenever... Um, Myself or, or my colleagues say, consumer-driven contract test, you know, is going to guard you against, you know, prop changes in the API that's going to break you. Isn't that good? They're like, yes, yes. And then we, we told them, okay, so you need to write this test. They're like, oh, no, <laughs> that's not what I signed up for. Um, so there is definitely that challenge. Um, I So philosophically, though, I do think that the consumers should write it. But there is that adoption issue overall, I think, with consumer-driven contract tests because this is putting the onus on the consumer also to to codify their quality expectations programmatically rather than just saying, 
your the data that you're delivering is not good enough. What is this, right? Um, so it takes effort and it takes skill because these tools take some learning to do. Philosophically, I do think that um, it needs to be the consumer because otherwise there's always going to be that translation layer. Um, so building up on that a little bit. Uh, philosophically, I think it should be the consumer and then uh, the producer needs to take uh, those expectations um, and in their CI CD pipeline, aggregate those right from multiple different consumers and then run those expectations against their data product. And hopefully before it has production, but you know, if um, if it's and starting from nothing, then at least from at least in production. Um, but yes, so it, yes, it is hard. So there are, I guess, two thoughts on that uh, that I have. The first one is if it's hard, and if the data product team has more skills on that and want to help the consumer, their consumers, they can bootstrap that for each consumer first and then kind of help them get into the cycle of updating them whenever their quality expectations change. And the second thing is maybe maybe the tooling um, ecosystem needs to also provide more options. Um, I am a little bit biased towards, you know, everything as code, right? So great expectations, sort of core, things like that, rather than UI-based tools, but I think it's good to have both options so that um, even UI-based tools, um, as long as the consumers can say, okay, I want this field to be within this range. I need this field to definitely be there. If you're renaming it, I need to know, right? As long as they're able to codify those expectations, it's, it's going to work. And again, as long as the producers have a way of then kind of consolidating those and then running them against their um, their data product. Yeah, and, and that's where I think the platform should be playing as much as possible because so much of this stuff in, in data mesh and in data in general is manual. And so much of this stuff should be just, you look at the way that um, things are handled on the services side, on the operational side. It, so much of this stuff is just automated in how we figured out how to, to interconnect these things or, you know, people are building these platforms to make it so that that's easy. But yeah, like I had Abe Gong on from uh, Great Expectations and he was, he talked about something that is, has just, you know, kind of been one of my nightmares since, which is that uh, you do have these uh, consumer driven testing, but they never expose that to the producer. They just have it and say, if it, this thing breaks upstream, then don't consume from it. Like if this violates my contract, don't consume from it. And it's like, why are you not exposing that to the producer? Like how uh, that's the philosophical aspect of like, okay, if we do consumer driven testing, that's great. But like you, there seems to be this block because then maybe somebody, do you think that that's because the consumers are then locking them in themselves into something and saying that this is what I want? And that's kind of been, you know, like when people go and talk to a domain and you say like, what data do you want? And they're like, just give us all your data and we'll figure out what we want from it. And it's like, that doesn't work. That's just a mess and everything like that. Do you feel like, 
philosophically, and, and you know, and this is a difficult question to ask or, or to answer because you know everybody's different. But do you feel like in general consumers are in a mode where they're not technical enough in general to do the consumer-driven testing? They're not in the mood, right? They just don't want to do it, or you know, there there isn't the good enough tooling, or that they're not really wanting to say this is what I want, because then if you if that gets delivered and they change what they want or they didn't know what they wanted, then they said, I want this thing. And then you delivered it to them and they said, that's not what I want. And they they don't it's almost like they don't have any room to to complain <laughs> that they're locking them. They're removing their ability to complain about things like where do you think the biggest challenge there is because people are going to try and do this you know I, I i highly recommend the consumer driven testing model and things like that i highly recommend all this stuff in code in programmatic and, and all that stuff if we can get there but it's super super difficult to get there so where do you think people are going to have the most pushback if they're trying to do something like this if they're trying to implement it hmm. i feel like you're describing the pushbacks already so my mind is going to how can i address these these pushbacks is that fair well but i'm i'm asking which one do you think is going to be the big one right because what 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 i'm having when i'm having conversations with people they go this was my surprise pushback like i knew it could be a pushback but i thought that would be 10% and this other thing would be 50% and this other thing that i thought would be 50% is 5% and these other things are pretty small and this other thing that i thought was going to be 10% is 75% of my pushback so like, where do you think that's, that like is the biggest challenge that people are going to have to tackle? Because that's been like, I think one of the big surprises in data mesh is like, where, where is it going to be? That's going to be my, my bigger headache. This is as a data producer or like as somebody trying to introduce consumer different products to so the consumer. Yeah. Or, or the, the data mesh leader, the implementation leader, are they going to have difficulty getting the consumers to want to do this? Or is it the, that the tooling is so difficult? Is it that they um, can't do it? Is it like, wh where do you think that pushback is going to be? Yeah, I, my feeling is, is, is that it's the, like, I'm a consumer, I just want everything you have. That's, that's a common one. Um, tooling can be a part of it, but I think that bit is surmountable. Like again, the technique that I mentioned earlier, like the, the implementation leader or, or the platform team can maybe help them bootstrap that. It's a common pushback, but it's a surmountable one. Um, I think the first one, that's a bit more of a mindset thing. Like, no, what do you mean? I have to specify, I just want everything and I want everything to be perfect. Um, that's, yeah, I think that's, that's the biggest challenge typically. And that's kind of what I'm not, I'm not surprised by that, but I, I think a lot of people are, is that getting people to lean in and actually exchange context instead of exchange requirements is, is not the way we've done things in data. So like we started kind of talking about a lot of the technical aspects where, you know, and you're, you're a tech principal, right? You're, you're a very techie type person, but like, where did you find was the most difficult for getting people to lean in? In, in the data mesh implementation that you worked on, you know, and it's going to be different for every domain and all that stuff. But like, where did, you, where, where should people be expecting to have the most 
challenges around ensuring quality and and that with these kinds of uh, because there are a lot of surmountable problems but you've got to have people that are actually communicating appropriately with each other yeah the in the context that i've seen the the biggest challenge is a similar one to what i shared just now as in the customers having a hard time specifying what it is they need their expectations and a part of that is is that um, so the the data mesh adoption that I'm seeing are mostly in big companies enterprises where um, releasing anything to production takes time right um, so there have been instances where uh, my teams are trying to push uh, their you know releases of the data product to production and they are trying to get feedback from the customer but the customer doesn't know yet in detail what they need because they haven't built the dashboard yet or they haven't built their part of it yet um, because they're depending on like the first cut of our data product, right? So there's that sort of dependency that um, that people think are hard dependencies. And I mean, they are, there is a dependency for sure, but how hard it is, I think we can, we can negotiate. Uh, but that sort of dependency makes it such that whenever we ask them about expectations, they just look at the data and the data quality at kind of, they look at it, but it's not, you know, in a level of detail, in the level of detail that we would like. Um, and And that's harder to fix than the tooling thing, because if they know if they have their expectations on the data, we can write the initial test for them and then we can have them modify it. But this one is a little bit more um, challenging because one, the problem number one is that release process takes time, right? So for them and for us, getting into production takes time and their planning process, agile, you know, agile adoption is still hit and miss in the industry, even, even after this time. Um, they have to look at what they have and then they um, they see if that's good enough and then they start building their stuff. So that's that's something that I've seen as well. It's And this is something that I don't think anybody said, but I, it, this is why as soon as you started to say some, a certain little things, I was like, there's something under here. I just have to ask the right question about it because exactly what you're talking about, I think is really, really prevalent of, you know, do we have to upskill all of our consumers it's not even skills, it's mindset, right? It's like getting them to lean in and getting them to say like, how, okay, we are partnered together on this. So we're going to have loose coupling around like timing coordination, but like I need, I, I'm going to put something in your hands and we're going to have a feedback cycle on that on a daily basis because I'm going to make changes on a daily basis, right? Shmax has talked about, um, and and one of the clients that, that she worked on, you know, the data product uh, creation process for something that's pretty simple, like a simple data product went from, you know, a six-week, eight-week type timeframe to minutes, maybe hours. But like you can get something into somebody's hands extremely quickly but exactly what you you talked about, I don't know what I want until I've seen it. I don't know what I'm looking for until I've I've done that. And and that's where 
I think a lot of people really diverge is unless you're really crisp around your use case, I'm not going to create data products for you, seems to be one camp, but that seems to be limiting us, right? And that seems to be limiting our ability to be curious and play around with the data. But if you're curious and playing around with the data and don't know exactly what it means, because I haven't prepared the information for you in such a way to answer your question, because I have to prepare it as if you might be able to answer or to ask any question of it, it just becomes this impossible kind of chicken and egg scenario, this back and forth, this this other thing. So it's really good to hear that actually put out there because I think a lot of people have kind of danced around that. Um, but like, how, like, what did you see where, where there was, maybe if you could give an example of where somebody was really good uh, as the consumer. And so then we can start to pattern match that or that we can start to to model that for potential consumers of like, how can they behave in such a way that's going to leverage as a producer, you know, the producer's time and effort the best, or do they have to have that really for- fully formed idea? Is that that you have to really, really ideate before you start to put something together or do you have something I've called like this thing called the data Shrek, which is uh, a purposeful swamp because, you know, Shrek, he loves a swamp. He like wanted to build a swamp. So you create a swamp so people can actually understand the art of the possible of what's out there. And then they can go, oh, OK, here are the different things. But I didn't you didn't have to spend a bunch of time to pump this in. You didn't have to do a bunch of, of pre-work. But I understand what data you might have available. OK, let's build a use case out of that. Or like, I, I'm just trying to figure this out. I'm, I'm, I kind of am asking you the giant, giant questions. I know you're, you're, I, I could tell you're, you're kind of like, okay, this is just a huge, huge question. But because I think you've, you've thought through it, even if you haven't like thought through at this exact question level, but like you've seen how this, how this can go well and how it obviously could be better. So like, what would you tell consumers about how they can, you know, I don't want to say behave in like kind of the childish manner, but like how how can they clean in and be a part of this and collaborate instead of just saying, give me what I want when I don't know what I want? Yeah, let me try to a quick answer to when have I seen this done well and then the longer answer. The quick answer is, when I've seen this done well is when the consumer, and actually my team at that time was the consumer. So maybe I'm praising my, my team at the time. Um, the the consumer's product, which is not a data product. I mean, actually, we did have some data products of our own, but we had an uh, user-facing product, so some dashboards, essentially. Those were not greenfield. They were already there, and we needed to you know to add more things into it. Um, so we kind of knew what fields we need, right? We, we, we have the, the need fairly clear in our heads. Um, and this was actually, it's not a perfect, uh, example because this wasn't an organization that was using consumer driven contract testing either at the time for data, but I think that this team would have, uh, less, uh, a much less hard time at defining what they need out of the data sets that they are trying to, you know, consume, consume from. 
And then if I now think about your your larger question on like how how can we get the consumers to quote unquote behave so that they can communicate their expectations? Um I kind of think there are two parts to it in that the product part and the sort of coordination part. The product part being that when they so they will have their own product, right? Whether that whether that be that be a dashboard or a machine learning model or whatever that is. Um I think that when they define it, they should at the very least if they if it's hard to define everything that they need, they have to learn to specify what they can't lose, like what can't be wrong. Like reverse the thinking, Sarah. Um, that definition of like, at the very least, defining what can't we lose for this dashboard? What is the what are the fields that absolutely need to be correct the way they, that we define them to be correct? Even if not every single, even if we don't have a definition of correct for everything that we will need in the dashboard, right? I think that my theory is that is more doable. So when I face this pushback again, that is what I will try. Uh, because every dashboard, every product will have, is it a sales dashboard? Oh, so, so, the, so then you need the sales numbers to be absolutely correct. Um, is it a, you know, I don't have any, any good example right now, but um, there is usually that like, what can't be wrong um, that I think is, is more easily identifiable than everything that needs to be right. Well, what drives value from this? Like, what is what are the very specific value drivers, and what are the the almost a SWOT analysis, right? Or or maybe not SWOT, but like, what are the um, what are the the risks, and what are the opportunities here? Or like, what what is the thing that really really matters? Because if it if this doesn't matter, and you know, like. I've talked about this with like completeness where completeness is totally uh, in some use cases, it's like ed everything needs to be complete because otherwise things will break and, and, you know, all of that, you know, we've, I think we've, we've wrapped up a lot of what, what we were kind of planning on talking about in that aspect. So one thing I wanted to talk about was the, the Jamak has brought this up as well, but the kind of low code, no code, it's deceptively easy until it's not. And this, you know, personally, you know, if I, I'm going to throw MongoDB under the bus, but I'm going to throw, you know, 2012 MongoDB under the bus where people would go in and it was like, you can do schema lists. And it was like, yeah, you can until your data doesn't fit in memory. And then all of a sudden you can't get anything performant. You know, your performance literally drops 90 to 95%. So like, that's kind of how I feel about low code, no code of that when you're actually trying to scale it it becomes a big problem. And you've seen this kind of in, in, in action for a lot of things. So I'd love to hear kind of, uh, you know, you said this and I really liked it. If there is a difference between ease and simplicity, right? Like, you, you know, okay, ease of use, but is this actually going to be simple to use in the immediate, in the medium to long term? Is this, that? So I'd love to hear, and this kind of does wrap into what we were talking about of, wouldn't it be nice if we had testing that was 
um, all code driven, but you know, not necessarily that users can use that. So, like, what have you seen around that low code, no code, and and where do you think people should be okay with it, if ever? I know Jamat kind of philosophically is like, never, don't, don't ever, because she loves code. But um, where do you think people can actually do that? Where I worry about low code, no code is for transformations in the context of. So actually, stepping back a little bit, low code, no code, um, the, the issue that you mentioned, that's common as sort of data as well, right? It's always easy to get started with these tools. And then once you, um, once you start, you start, uh, you add more and more things into it. And then now it's so hard to, it's so hard to, to add anything to it, but it's also by now hard to move out of it. Um, so there's always that, um, I wanted to say catch 22, but it's not exactly that, but you know, you know what I mean? Um, and then when it comes to data, I kind of I kind of think that um, for extract and load, if you're uh, using the ELT model, it's okay because it is simple integrations between two systems. Um, but when you use low-code, no-code for your transformation or your orchestration, I think those those things really are better, much better to do in code because of all the useful benefits, virtual, uh, version control, testing, et cetera. It's, it's funny how much orchestration, the more you dig into it and the more you find this of like that, you know, people have talked about this with um, Airflow where no one can read each other's DAGs. So you can't actually understand what's going on with the other person. So you can't test, you can't modify, you can't change. You basically have to completely rewrite from scratch simply because it's completely incomprehensible. And I, I, we saw this a little bit. So I was previously working at DataStax and um, they built an, um, an API gateway and it spit out code, but it was completely incomprehensible code. So it was like, it's in open source. You can look at the code but nobody can understand what it actually means. And that meant that a lot of people were far less likely to use it because they couldn't tune it or they couldn't understand. If I have to change this thing, I have to just rewrite from scratch or I have to assume that this thing is doing the right thing. And I can't test, I can't modify, I can't, once I hit a performance issue, what do I do, right? <laughs> like. I'm screwed. I can't actually go through anything more. So like, did you see this happening a lot or was this something where it's, it's, you know, kind of your, your basically, did you live the horror story or did you just hear the horror story or? Where I, the horror story that I lived is more on the transformation side. Well, yeah, let me make that statement. It's more on the transformation side when it comes to orchestration. Um, Airflow isn't perfect, but also I think tools like Azure Data Factory or things like that, there are, uh, are, are drag and drop, or actually like Azure Data Factory can spit out code as well. But if you were to actually write the code from scratch rather than using the, the um, 
UI is just a lot more verbose and difficult to work with. Um, so I think that uh, in terms of orchestration, Airflow is still the lesser evil on that one, but the complexity that you can get to with, with Airflow um, also, for me, it motivates me to not try to do very complex things with, with the orchestration layer as much as possible. But yeah, uh, the horror story that I've seen is more on the transformation layer, where it's drag and drop um, SQL-like transformations. Um, there are then... Um, this is sort of the in the data virtualization setting. So then the SQL-like language can be run against multiple different databases, underlying databases, theoretically without moving the data. So this all sounds really good um, initially, I think, to a lot of people because you can get started really quickly. Uh, but that's, again, always, that's typically the case with these low-code, no-code tools, including this one. Uh, but the challenge there is, of course, yes, while it is easy, uh, the more the more code you add here, the more joints you you do, and the more underlying databases you hit, um, the more it suffers performance wise because now it's hitting too many databases and trying to get the data into memory um, or uh, for whatever joints that need to be done across databases. Um, and I've seen the complexity grow to 30, 40 joints for one seemingly innocent view that is exposed to a consumer. Um, and once it gets to that, that state, moving that out is, is not a trivial task. Right. Yeah. But, but getting there was easy. You, you create a view on top of another view, on top of another view, on top of many, many databases. And then now it's not performant, and now your consumers are complaining. Why is this so slow? Yeah, it's it's the kind of uh, uh, the turtles all the way down thing from uh, Discworld. But uh, it's also like, um, so there's a really good thing, I think at the end of 2021, even uh, on the Data Engineering Podcast, where they were talking about this, that um, on the transformation side, even like DBT and things like that in Jinja, that you lose sight of what you're actually doing. And so it's not even just non-performant. You don't understand it, right? Somebody goes to make a change or something changes upstream and you have no idea how to fix it because it's become this layer on top of a layer on top of a layer on top of a layer. And so it becomes this, this difficult thing. And, and so there are tools that are you know, there's ways to misuse tools. So it's not that low code, no code is, is bad in and of itself. It's that it encourages behavior that gets you in trouble rather quickly. <laughs> and it makes it so that you can't actually have like a product approach to things because you it's not a product anymore. It's just, you know, a kind of mass conglomeration of things that have been thrown together and so you're you're not managing it like a data product because you're not you're not putting together the data exactly as if you would want to. Um, and especially when you're talking about, you know, as your Max talked about, you definitely shouldn't put the virtualization directly over operational systems. 
And then you can start to talk about, should you put it over your data products? And the answer is probably yes, to provide additional views rather than, you know, where you create kind of virtual data products. But that also very quickly becomes uh, a, a potential thing that you want to monitor to make sure it's not getting out of hand. Like, did, did you see it more of data off the operational systems as if the the virtual data products instead of actual data products? A lot of that, but also some of them are a mix. So because these these joints can happen across multiple underlying databases, sometimes one is an operational database and the other one might be an analytical database. I've seen that too. Oh, there's something that I want to address from what you said, Jason. You were, you were kind of talking about DBT, right? And how, how even with DBT, you can have these issues. I think that's the, the turtles all the way down thing. That's the nature of software development. We are just building abstraction on top of abstraction on top of abstraction all the way down to to electric signals. Um, but I think the quality of those abstractions do matter. And it is not easy to build the right abstraction. Um, so like in the DVD case, it's not easy to build you know, the right uh, the right views, the modular views that that make sense, you know, when they get piled on top of each other. Uh, but I think something to be said about low-code, no-code tools is as an abstraction, what they typically try to do is they optimize for that ease to get started. And so it is typical that when, when uh, your use case becomes more complex, but you still need to keep the performance and, uh, and you need to be able to maintain things, it starts to break in the sense of it's not insurmountable th things, but to keep things performant, you now need to dig a lot deeper into this, this tool, the innards of this very particular tool um, in a way that's, that contradicts what it was meant to be which was this easy thing. Yeah, it's that you have to really, really care you know, about the exact specifics about things, which is kind of what we're trying to avoid as well when building the platform, when we're trying to provide these abstractions so that people can say, I don't care exactly how Spark processes this versus Flink, and I don't care what you're using. I care about, I want this to happen. How do I get to this happening and how do I do that in code? How do I provide that abstraction layer? And, you know, it's obviously far easier said than done, but I think there's, that's where we want to get and that's where we want to stay focused on getting to. And it's okay that we're not there yet and that we're, we're keeping plugging along, but we have to, uh, I think Jamak said this really interesting aspect of like, even her concept of, of a data product, a lot of people still just you know, I've, I've told her this and she's uh, like, well, I described everything that it should be in the book and things like that. And it's like, yes, but it's not a tangible thing. And so everybody has kind of a different definition. So we're not able to put a unified pressure on the vendors to build what we need to do this right. So we almost need kind of uh, uh, an, uh, a conglomeration of ideas to get to a place where we can press on these vendors to do this. But yeah, we, we need to make things more you know, with higher ease, but not with lower simplicity, right? Where And that, that becomes a, 
where where you're not trading off ease and simplicity, right? Where you're having both ease and simplicity, but that's very simple to say and very difficult to offer, especially when you're thinking at more and more scale and more and more complexity of what you're doing at the underlying layer. So, uh, you know, it's it's something where I hope we can get to. But um, so we've covered a whole heck of a lot of different things. Like I feel like I could just ask you questions for hours and yet still uh, ask kind of confusing questions because you've just got all this knowledge that I want to unlock. But is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to or any way you'd kind of want to wrap up the episode? There's one thing that comes to mind. Uh, when we were doing the prep, if I can say that, um, you had you asked me when it comes to testing, how much is too much? Um so I gave that some thought um, after after we chatted. And yeah, if that's okay, I want to kind of wrap up by some some thinking on this and then we can wrap up. Okay, so my first reaction after that call to this question was, hmm, I haven't seen the too much very much. So you're probably not doing it too much. But... Um, maybe the more serious response is still that customer impact view, sort of um, SLOs, right? You as a data product, you will have SLOs for your customers or you will have those data quality expectations. Hopefully, right, once we uh, get over those hump, getting the consumers to work with us to actually kind of codify at least what they can't miss, um, and, and that, I think, again, I think we talked about that being lagging indicators. So those lagging indicators and the SLO, the exit, the number of the SLI. Okay. This thing needs to be correct. I have a monthly report that executives are going to look at. The numbers have to be absolutely correct, uh, when the reports are generated, those things, those specific, um, the, the SLIs essentially, right? Um, 99.99%, but or, or more specifically, needs to be correct on certain times. Um, there, those expectations, I think, inform whether you're doing enough or whether you're not doing enough. Um, you keep missing them, then you're not doing enough and you need to do more of that monitoring, either again on your source systems or on your transformations. But if you're consistently meeting them, then then everything's good. Then maybe you should continue to focus on new feature development or getting uh, new, con- new consumers to, to serve. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially if <laughs> what are people's actual expectations and what is good enough and what, what is okay. So, um, well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's kind of the best place to follow up? Anything specific you want people kind of following up about or just kind of LinkedIn, anything data or or anything you talked about here? What's kind of the best place? LinkedIn, yes. Anything data, sure. Um, or anything around software engineering practices for data uh, specifically. Um, yeah. So my LinkedIn is just under Sophia Tanya. And we'll drop a link to that in the show notes to make it easy for folks as well. So, but well, uh, Tanya, thank you so much for your your time here today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation as well. Uh, thank you, everyone out there for listening. Thank you. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Sophia Tanya. 
tech principal at ThoughtWorks. You can find a link to her LinkedIn and a link to the presentation she gave on software testing in Data Mesh in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. 